Come with me, if you will, and discover a world of stories within a story. A story that exists only in your own mind. A story built upon the collective stories of those who came before. Okay, this isn't really working. You are not great at the Twilight Zone voice. Get up. Wait, why? Come on, I just started. Nope, come on, dude. Get up and get out. But where to? I'm your intro voice. Who's gonna possibly replace me? I fucking warned you about the Twilight Zone shit on this episode. It doesn't make sense, and we can't pull it off. Fuck you, yes I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Don't make me- What were you gonna do? You can't do the whole show. Fine, make me. I think it's a good idea, and you can't- for not going to the gym. Holy shit, I'm tired now. Hello everybody, and welcome back to Waytat Nerd. I'm your host, William, and I will be your guide through the metaverse and all the mind-bending questions of if you're you, or if you're a dude playing a dude pretending to be a dude playing a dude. Yeah, this is probably going to be one of those episodes. Uh, You've been warned. But before we get into all that, I want to thank you so much for listening. It means the world to me to have my voice blasting through your eardrums like the blast wave from the grenade in Waytat's intro. Uh, listen to that episode if you haven't already. It's the one on immigration. Uh, it means the world to me to have your listenership, especially at such an early stage. Also, I hope that uh, every three weeks works out instead of every two. The extra time helps out a ton, and I hope, uh, and I hope that y'all get to see the outcome of that in the future. Uh, this time, maybe not, because I have been sick, as you might have noticed from some of the residual stuffiness and uh, coughing. It's really bad right now, I don't know why, but hopefully it gets better. Uh, but regardless, there's still some stuff I ask you to do. First, make sure to like the show and leave a review on whatever podcast platform of your choice. And on YouTube, or if your pod player has the option to like things. Uh, Also, make sure to comment, DM me on Twitter, and send me emails to keep in contact and tell me I'm an asshole directly. Also, make sure to recommend the show to friends, family, and loved ones to keep my dopamine numbers rising. Uh, Also, if you're just overhearing this from a public bus or across the aisle at a grocery store, uh, make sure to also follow the show and make sure that the person playing the audio knows that. Uh, Because they are clearly unhinged and they're probably going to hurt you unless you find a way to appease them, and this is probably the best way. Probably. On to the show. Okay, so now that that crazy person has calmed down, let's talk about what this episode is. Meta. Like, how you've never met a woman. Which is also why the introduction was the way that it was. That was my... That was meta-commentary about how I'm bad at doing intros, and also I'm just bad at things in general. 
And like always, we're going to start with some definitions and terms. Beginning with capturing that very squirrely and cage-opposed definition of meta with nothing but a fishing net and a pair of safety scissors. Meta, in general, refers to three things simultaneously, but all of them are related to being outside the fiction, but still not within the real tangible world. The first is metafiction, which is a genre of story that's aware that it's a story. Now, this might sound dumb because stories aren't alive, and if I was the one to break that to you, don't worry, I'm going to send an existential crisis care package. But most stories are written as though the narrator is telling you about some shit that actually happened. But metafiction doesn't. Metafiction will say, hey, listen to this wild shit, and then regale you with a story that everyone knows isn't real going into it, even the person telling it. And these are usually used as genre parodies and have three primary characteristics, being fourth wall breaking, being self-reflective, and being highly experimental. The second kind of meta is a metagame which is a game about a game, or a game within a game, or a game playing a game that's pretending to be a guy that's playing a game. And a good example of this would be something like Gwent, before it became an actual card game, or any of the mini-games that you can play during your video game. How many times can I say game in one sentence? However, this can also be in reference to meta-gaming, which is usually the knowledge of a game or its systems to use the rules against themselves, or to utilize knowledge from outside to win or do better. This would include meta-puzzles, like how every puzzle in a D&D game is a meta-puzzle, because it's a game within a game world that ignores the game world and reaches out to tickle your taint directly. And the last version of a meta is in reference to the community around a game or story, but primarily games. And this is a series of out-of-universe optimizations, changes, and strategies used by community and the creators. For example, if during a game update for a sci-fi FPS, the developers realize that no one is using the very cool sniper rifles that they took months of blood, sweat, tears, and cum to develop, so they decide to alter the damage profile and bullet drop just enough to make them hella good and an actual threat to everyone. Well, then the meta would be around sniper rifles. Basically, if you wanted to be really good at the game, then the best thing to do would be to use a sniper rifle, because they're receiving the most support, and the game's math is heavily focused on them. But this can come from the community, too. Like if, in your war game, your joke halfling faction built around food and rolling fours becomes deeply beloved by the community, and everyone who runs a halfling army is instantly betrayed as the Chad, then the meta thing to do would be to play the halflings even though they otherwise suck. I mean, they only hit on sixes. Why would you even care about wanting to roll a four? But, I mean, all the funny things happen on a four, so. Now, important to all of these, and something to explain before we go further, is the concept of the fourth wall. Uh, this comes from stage plays, where stage left, stage right, and the rear of the stage would make up the three walls where reality in the, where reality in the play didn't exist past. But, since you have to be able to, you know, watch the play, there isn't a fourth wall that would logically be there. Because plays don't usually assume that the audience is there to be an active part of the story, so they get ignored and it's implied the characters are unaware and reality continues past the audience for them. So, there comes the idea of a fourth wall to put them in their own separate reality box. Pretty wild, huh? But this has been co-opted to mean the invisible barrier between reality and fiction. So when a story breaks the fourth wall, they're showing an awareness that they're in a reality box, 
and are able to pick things from the real world to show you like a cat leaving disemboweled birds on your doorstep. But with those definitions and terms covered, uh, let's talk about some of the most commonly seen or, in my opinion, or in my opinion, egregious metatropes there are. And a lot of these are ones that you're going to have opinions on, but that'll come back around later. First, we have accentuating the negative, which is a trope where the media is being intentionally twisted to fit your cathartic desire to watch everything possible go wrong and for the most nightmarish things to happen. And this isn't like the scene in Deadpool 2 that I seem to be the only one uncomfy with watching, but is instead like your character's planning out how to do this ambush, and then it goes instantaneously and violently wrong that three of them die, one is disabled for life, and the rest are severely traumatized. Or alternatively, it's using tropes like Harmony being boring and everyone being a piece of shit. Like Warhammer. Warhammer settings are cool and fun, and war games first and stories second, but they accentuate the shit out of the negative. No one gets along, and even the quote-unquote good guys are usually xenophobic mecha-fascists that will still only work together when the other option is the obliteration of their entire species. And yeah, this one is used quite a lot because it's less relying on the story to make logical sense within the universe. It's basically turning the audience and screaming at you, satire, you fuck, right into your face. Then we have the ascended meme or the meme acknowledgement. Uh, with these, it's basically showing your audience that you're cool and hip and see the memes. Uh, for the first one, an ascended meme is just a meme that becomes a canonical piece of the work because the creator just fucking loves it. Like how the official music video for Caramel Dancing acknowledge the very popular trend of making your wife do the dance, and even calls out that you can watch people do it on YouTube and included the dance in their video. Making it canonical to the fiction. Also, that song is now in your head, and I don't care, you can go fuck yourself. The other one, meme acknowledgement, happens when someone in the show acknowledges a meme that exists in the real world. Like if you, for example, make an art piece of one of the show's characters watching a VTuber with barbecue sauce slathered all over their nipples and Cheeto dust on the screen and their cock, but nowhere else, and that gets popular enough for that character's voice actor to say, oh yeah, that's accurate, then congratulations, that's meme acknowledgement. Will it ever be in the show? No. But it's asserting that if they were, it wouldn't be out of place for that character. Uh, double points, by the way, if that VTuber is Bao and they're a werewolf. I unsurprisingly know my VTubers, and holy shit, have I never seen a more troublingly horny individual. I've seen clips that honestly scare me. Uh, but the next trope is the couch gag. Which is not when you're being too loud while Mistress is pegging your butt, so she puts a couch in your mouth. Rather, this is when the intro of the show changes as a joke to the audience, since the characters will never acknowledge it, and the intro isn't treated as really part of the show. The name of this comes from The Simpsons, where a lot of episodes have a different weird thing happening to the family as they run to the couch or once they sit onto the couch. Uh, this one also sounds like the most fun to do uh, in a story or in real life. You also have direct lines to the author, which is the trope of putting yourself in the world by claiming that the story was relayed to you by a character. Which is the trope of putting yourself in the world by claiming that the story was relayed to you by the character, that you found an exposition journal and are publishing it after some editing, or that someone sent a fully completed book to you and pled that you publish it for some reason. 
rather than being a self-insert, this is essentially saying that you were chosen to do this by the characters because you're just so goddamn special. There's another trope that I don't have much to say on, but I just want to mention, called Finagle's Law, which is pretty infamous in anime, actually. Uh, and this law says that when you put it into human hands, the level of perversion of any given universe will always trend towards the maximum. Yes, this is the Lucky Letcher trope, where somehow, no matter what, the main character's face, hands, or pelvis always ends up buried as deeply as possible into the boobs, butt, or pussy of his incredibly attractive and underdressed friends. And it also doesn't cause any long-term trust issues. But for actual trope with meat on their bones, we also have the It Was His Sled trope, referencing Citizen Kane, where the entire plot twist of that movie is as last word Rosebud wasn't in reference to some hidden treasure or mystery about reality. It was instead about... It was instead about a bitter, lonely old man dying of old age alone in a gilded cage of his own making, a palace of hubris whose size is rivaled only by his emptiness, and how, even in his final moments, he was still unhappy because the money was never the thing making him happy. It only distracted from the fact that the only thing he ever wanted was his childhood back. Sorry, English studies came out there. But this trope is basically a plot twist or a twist ending that's so ubiquitous that you know it without even knowing where it's from, and now it's impossible to spoil because it's just been spoiled by the zeitgeist. Fucking zeitgeist, I hate that guy. And then we have the two that I think shows the most insecurities when you do them too often. The meta twist and lampshading. The meta twist is what happens when you start doing the twist so goddamn hard your jiggy shatters past the mortal bounds of reality. I mean, really, what you should do is just face your fear of talking to that cute wallflower in the corner. It'll be totally fine. Not kidding, it's not going to be fine. Instead, these are twists where the twist is either so fucking dumb or convoluted that can only be designed to trick the audience. A.K.A. every M. Night Shyamalan Bang Bang movie since Sixth Sense. Or, that in your effort to trick your audience, you don't have a twist when one would normally make sense there. Like, if your characters have always been saved at the last second by their sentient spaceship, for some reason your audience expecting that really gets your nutsack twisted, you might decide that, nah, this time, they fucking die. Good night, everyone. You enjoying my story pissed me the fuck off, so I killed everyone. Clearly, this is insecure because you felt like your brand was shock and surprise, and not what it actually likely was, like, you know, a cool story or a character with attitude abs and a fat ass. Lampshading, meanwhile, like the trope would imply, is shadowing your story's intensity by breaking the fourth wall to break it up. Or in other words, calling attention to how implausible, blatantly a trope, or how weird something is because you're afraid that playing, in, that playing it straight will lose your audience. And while this can be good, like if a faction's whole thing is wolves and someone in canon goes, what are you, a fucking furry? Because that shows you're self-aware and recognizes it as silly. The problem is when you're insecure enough in your writing to use this for things that you should play straight. Like if a character's in deep emotional pain because they just found out that the childhood friend they saved the life of before they deserted the military by turning a child soldier to fine fucking powder just got executed by the state because of their diversion, their desertion, that's okay to let characters have... It's okay to let your characters and your audience have that moment. 
But if you, as the author, broke in this deeply depressing and sad moment while the audience is mourning, leaned on the gravestone and said, no homo though, Lamau, your audience would rightly kick you right in the urethra, specifically, and pour lemon juice in your corneas, specifically. And, uh, yeah, the Marvel movies do this a lot, and... And, yeah, the Marvel movies do this a lot because they're still embarrassed to be about comic books. Anyways, to the history. Wild how I've given up on making uh, transitions sensible by any degree, huh? See? Another example of lampshading. Anyways, so when did this whole meta this, meta that start? Well, actually, all the way back in 1387. Although you could argue that metagaming has been a thing since humans invented the idea of a game and were able to think about more than two things happening at around the same time, but 1387 is at least retrospectively the origins of metafiction with Canterbury Tales by Jeffy Boy Chaucer, uh, where he's a character in the books. Yes, books. I wrote book in the script. I know it's not just one book. Uh, because he's the one writing down all the cool things going down, is a direct witness to a lot of them. But like I said, metafiction isn't really considered a thing until the 1960s. A whole 570 years later, when it becomes incredibly prominent, especially amongst the counterculture movement. Because they are very concerned with and focused on social and cultural awareness, critique, and self-consciousness. And less prominent would be stories like Lost in the Funhouse, Pale Fire, and Slaughterhouse-Five. In 1970, William H. Gass creates the term metafiction to describe, to describe this in his book Fiction and Figures of Life, where he says the reason why we're starting to see metafiction is because we're getting better at the medium. Which is cool, because if you've seen the amount of meta in basically everything, it kind of indicates that we're getting really good at this. Seven years later... Robert Scholz expands on the theory, saying that using metafiction is essentially a simulation and emphasis on one of the four aspects of fictional criticism, and the artist essentially critiquing their genre or fiction as a whole. I am fucking wild, right? Oh, also, just to cover my bases, uh, these four forms of criticism are formal, behavioral, structural and, structural, and philosophical. And in the 1980s, Latino literature picks up metafiction and runs with it with even stories today having metafictional elements. Some of them being the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow, Wayo, Oscar Wayo, uh, Carmelo, and her body. I haven't read those ones specifically, but yeah, I've noticed Latino writing is very meta. I mean, even before the 1980s, it was clear that a lot of their stories were still very much aware of being fictional, or were actually just addressing the audience directly. However, across the board, the 1990s changed something with a single invention. The internet. Now, even as rudimentary as it was at first, humans could connect with each other across the world. And, what was one of the first things they did with it? Develop metagaming, develop metagaming to the point it is now. And, and a lot of porn. And drugs. Look, there's like five things that humans like, and two of them are sex, one of them is drugs, one of them is games, and then the other one's violence, and you know how that went with the internet. Anyways, 
Anyways, with instant access and communication to most people across the world, it was very easy to talk about the games you love and share strategies. It wasn't too long after that, with the development of LAN parties, MMOs, early online games, and the birth of esports into the 2000s, the metagaming went into full swing, with it spawning its own meta-based communities and developers responding to meta-concerns and releasing balances, patches, and sequels addressing them. And this also began to happen in the role-playing game space a lot more, with people who had found the cracks in the rule system finding ways to break it and sharing it online. Like, for example, if you play D&D and have a rules lawyer DM that, like, takes everything, like, rules as written, uh, take the Mold Earth cantrip and watch them quickly decide that dirt doesn't exist anymore as you drop every enemy into a five-foot-deep hole in the ground. I, I did that, and immediately, uh, there's no dirt <laughs> anywhere. We're always on solid rock. Uh, or the Coffee Lock that doesn't sleep, and it subsists only on sorcery points and spell slots. And into the 2010s, our ideas about meta become even more advanced, with games, both video games and role-playing games, embracing the idea of a meta world and start to push on the boundaries between fiction and reality. Most notably, a lot of games around this time include a game-within-a-game mechanic, where the game that the player is playing is actually being played according to, in real-world fiction, a first-person character in a fictional world. You know, stuff like uh, Pony Island. Or where the characters have realized that they're in a video game and ask you for help, like Doki Doki Literature Club. Also, if you haven't played that one and you haven't been spoiled, go play it. It's a very fun, light visual novel where you date one of four girls. Yuri for life. Oh. Yeah. Yikes. But that takes us to the modern day, where we have vast and thriving communities built on the backs of arguing meta, games and occasionally stories will still reference the audience or acknowledge us, and content creators, in some fourth wall breaking ways. And it's still pissing everyone off. So, let's talk about that. Alright, so the very concept of meta isn't something that's necessarily controversial, but it does get a lot of shit talked on about it. Because meta is, admittedly, kind of annoying. Especially in the modern day. Because it drives engagement, a lot of games encourage metagaming. Meaning there's a pattern of playing into the current meta until it becomes unpopular or unprofitable, and then quickly shifting to the next meta. A lot of the games that are the most successful in creating a strong meta community, however, well, not wildly oscillate between metas, because they understand the kind of game that they're making, and it encourages people to play how they want to. Or alternatively, to play how the developer wants you to. And with metafiction, most people will really enjoy well-written media. When the world that's being portrayed is silly or cool, and the meta thing is meant to accentuate that and call attention to it, your audience is going to go fucking ham for it. But if you do it too much, draw too much attention, it's poorly written or is just done because you're embarrassed or trying to make a meme, then it's going to get shit on, as it should. A lot of properties that are successfully meta, especially nowadays, shoot the gap and manage to create something fun and interesting by knowing what they're talking about and who the audience is. Like Deadpool. Deadpool stuff that's good knows that the audience wants something silly and violent and gory, where the butt of the joke is everyone, including the audience, that references stuff that's 
just out of touch enough to make Deadpool look like an ass. The common theme here is that in order to use meta with your audience, you need to be confident that you know what you're doing and just do it. Because the problem we have is a lot of properties half-ass their meta-ness, which makes it cringy and painful to watch. Or even worse, makes it appear like you don't care about the material and aren't interested in making a good story because, huh, wouldn't it be so stupid if Thor did, its, did a superhero landing? Is apparently more important to you. But let's talk more specifically about why that matters. Alright, so starting from a philosophical sense, metafiction matters and is important because it examines stories and the role that they play in our lives. Alright, so starting from a philosophical sense, Metafiction matters and is very important because it examines stories and the role they play in our lives. If, we'd ever, if we didn't ever think to do metafiction, then we probably wouldn't ever have examined some plot elements and stories we've been told. Which can either help to point out some really shitty things, like fridging, or point out some really cool things, like hentai. Speaking of which, if you overindulge, then you quickly get cynical and stop finding joy in these stories. Because you've become too, quote-unquote, self-aware, and are thinking about the, quote-unquote, code, and the, quote-unquote, programming, and mechanics of the story instead of reading it. You train yourself to stop living in the moment, and instead examine why this moment matters from a wider context. And from the perspective of enjoying a piece of writing on, or from the perspective of the writer, metafiction can add a lot of investment. Because, let's be fair. It's not always a good idea to play something straight. Sometimes you have to play it a little gay. There's some moments where having a character not ask some questions or call out how stupid what's happening is that would absolutely break the story. So by having a character be kind of meta and ask, yo, what the fuck, you can dispel some of the audience's questions by addressing it in story from a character. And it can also make them like you more or let down their guard because they'll be more likely to accept your story about power-armored super soldiers fighting green soccer hooligans if you occasionally turn to them and go, hey, check this shit out. Because then, you look like you're in on the joke, and that this is intentionally goofy. However, even in the goofiness, there's some moments to play straight. Because during moments of high emotion, great sacrifice, or something important happening, you want your audience to buy the story the most, not thinking about your audience not thinking about the author's self-awareness. Especially because breaking this moment punishes the audience for actually feeling sad. It's like making someone feel vulnerable, reaching out to you in that vulnerability, and then calling it stupid. And just like real life, they're probably going to clam up, and they will refuse to ever get close enough to you to let you hurt them again. Also, just uh, off-script, some, like, real-world advice. Uh, if you are in a relationship with someone and this is the dynamic between you and your partner, you're a piece of shit and you don't deserve them. And if you're that partner listening with them, you should leave. Uh, anyways. Um, like if one of the super soldiers sees a mother and her two kids getting surrounded and decides to jump in, sacrificing their life to keep those 
civilians alive and even pass off their firearm to the sun and say, protect your family and get out of here, that would really make the audience that was invested go cold if you stopped the tape and went, well, that happened. Like, it wasn't an emotionally affecting moment. But for things like metagaming, it really matters because it can either ruin or make the game. For things like war games, competitive video games, and a lot of card games, the metagame can sometimes or often be just, if not more, fun for some people than the story. In fact, some games focus solely on the meta, rewarding players for their efficiency or having seasons where particular strategies tend to or always win. However, for a lot of role-playing games, narrative war games and video games, and a lot of other card games, it can ruin it entirely. Because in these, the point is the story, not to quote-unquote win. Role-playing games are all about cooperative storytelling, and so having meta elements can shift the focus and change it to being almost entirely about the mechanics. Narrative-focused games are meant to be experienced, not meted around. And a lot of card games, the fun is in the random chance, or out-strategizing your opponent while having shit in your hands. Rather than building a deck, for the most recent 10-card pickup, one-turn victory combo meta that needs to play out exactly in the right order, or you will instantly lose and then commit seppuku on the table. So when you engage in meta, you need to be very careful, particularly as a creator. So let's talk about how you would do that. Okay, so we're going to just briefly touch on metagaming. Um, I was going to initially just focus on metafiction, but it just kind of a, a appeared to me of, like, I should probably also talk about this, so we're going to go off script a little. Um, so with metagaming, I only really have experience with role-playing games, so that's what we're going to talk about with, like, how, uh, how metagaming happens. Thanks for the input, Bone. Uh... <laughs> That hasn't happened in a while. Um, so with metagaming in a role-playing game, um, there's really two options that you have to deal with it. If you and your table don't mind having metagaming, then honestly probably the best thing to do is just roll with it. Because most likely that's how someone's enjoying the game. They may care about your story. Uh, I'm going to say if they're one of your friends, they probably do care about your story. But their focus in games is more on, like, what they can do mechanically and feeling powerful. So you shouldn't take that away from them. Instead, what you should do is you should try to incorporate some of their meta-knowledge in a way that would make sense. Like, for example, if you're playing a tabletop RPG and your players encounter a troll and only one of them knows the trolls are vulnerable to fire, uh, rewarding them by making up some bullshit on the spot about how, like, Oh, well, yeah, you are right, because there's a nursery rhyme from your homeland where, like, you know, they tell you how to fight common monsters you might encounter in the woods, and one of them is trolls, and it says to light them on fire. And that will keep all the other players invested and will reward them for knowing something. Um, the other way that you could do it is just, like, not acknowledge it at all and just be cool with it. That is mostly just going to work in like a beer and pretzels kind of game where you are showing up to this event to sit down at the table and do a role-playing game because all of your friends 
are socially awkward and don't know how to just interact with each other like normal human beings. So you have to pretend to be other people to socially interact with each other in any way. Don't judge me. I'm not weird. You're weird. Uh, alternatively, if your party is like really against meta and really against metagaming and someone in your group metagames, your best option is to, I mean, one, give them a warning, be like, hey, we talked about this. Don't do that shit. Uh, and they keep going. Your two options are, unfortunately, one, kick them out. And the other one is incorporate them being wrong into the story. For example, using that troll again. If they're fighting a troll and they shout, hey, trolls are weak to fire, they can't regenerate. And then the troll regenerates anyways. That is a moment where you can use that troll that might have just been a random fight into your story. By, you know, like, let's say, like, your story is, like, confronting hell. Well, now this is a hell troll that is immune to fire, and you need to find something else that will damage it. And then you put that metagamer right back in the same place as everyone else, and you also prove to them, listen, motherfucker, I will ruin you if you try this shit again. I've I've done that a few times. I've just made shit up on the spot to get around metagaming. Okay, but with that, let's now talk about writing metafiction. Also, that went a lot better than I thought it would. I even had some, like, ad-libbed jokes in there. So, first is you address your audience. Uh, this will make them engage with you on a level outside of the story rather than just engaging with the story on its own, uh, which means that you can then say your piece well, suddenly jolting them out of the narrative and taking them by surprise. Or alternatively, you could write a story within a story. For example, with the Princess Bride movie. Here, there are two fourth walls. A false one and a true one. The false wall is the barrier between the Princess Bride book and the story being told about the sick kid. The true one is the barrier between the audience and the kid. Or alternatively, if you're not, like, cultured and don't know the Princess Bride, which, if you don't, fuck you. You're a terrible person. Uh, another example would be like the office where like the false fourth wall is that there's a camera crew recording a reality TV show. The true fourth wall is that that camera crew recording the reality TV show is actually recording the show, the office that has like takes and stuff. And is like a scripted show. Uh, alternatively, uh, you could write a story within a story. Uh, I already said that one. Or alternatively, uh, write a story about someone reading a reading or writing a book. By doing this, you're drawing attention to the fact that your audience is absorbing secondhand art and might also be dragging them into the same story. Uh, this one would be like never-ending story. It is a book. What well, is a? I'm trying to remember, it is a story about a kid reading a book that is telling the story of another child and you are watching the movie where if you engage with that first source material, you are involved now in the story. So it's drawing you in kind of literally. Uh, fourth, you can make a character aware that they're part of the story. I mean, this could be in like the snarky Deadpool kind of way. A more dramatic, I'm stuck in the narrative way, where they become trapped in a book because of magic reasons. 
or the humorous, if not sometimes cringy, wow, this feels like something that would happen in anime while they're in an anime way. Uh, be careful with that last one because it really lo- rides the line between cheese and shit. Um, or comment on the story while telling it, using like footnotes, margin writing, scrawled notes on the page, or even in parentheticals. Commenting on the story as a narrator or a character snaps that same awareness of the meta-ness of the moment into your audience. This can also save or hurt you, so be careful with that. Uh, Next, make the narrator explicitly a character, either retelling the story, making one up, or being told from the first-person perspective to the audience. And if all of that is too hard, then the easiest way to do this would be having a genre-savvy character know exactly what would happen if they were in the genre that they're actually in. Like having horror movie protagonists that know what a horror movie is and are also horror movie fans. Or you can have a story with multiple storylines and narrators telling different sides of the same event. Which then breaks up the omnipotence of the narrators and draws attention to it being a meta as there is suddenly another meta narrator doing the meta narration, which is the collection of all these stories together and they just so happen to be the author. Which, while you're processing that mindfuck, uh, let's go straight to the conclusion. Yeah, 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 I know you all wanted to hear what I have to say, but I really don't have anything to add. This, just like a few recent episodes, hasn't really all been that controversial. I mean, to me at least. Anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed, like it, leave a review, whatever else it is you can do on your platform of choice. Send me an email at waytadpods at gmail.com with questions, concerns, opinions, compliments, insults, um, actuallys, metas you engage with, what the fuck a meta woman is, and anything else you want to tell me. Also follow me on Twitter at waytadpods. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat, where I talk about other topics that are, I was going to say a bit more depressing. I really, what's more depressing than realizing that every story that you've ever read has been a figment of your imagination and that none of those people are real and they stop existing the moment you stop reading. Anyways, have a good night, have fun, keep writing, and remember, I totally didn't kill Intro William. You heard nothing. You heard nothing. This has been Why Are You Talking About This Nerd, and I've been your host, William. Good night.